You know, uh, I like Valentine's Day. A lot of people um, have mixed feelings about it. Some people think that it's just, you know, another day for, you know, the, the rich to get richer off of boxes like that and uh, flowers and cards and all of that kind of stuff. And I think Rick's right. Every day should be Valentine's Day, and it is in some sense. But it is good to have a day where you just kind of say, ah, this is just, this is good. And let's, let's celebrate our love for each other. I like Valentine's Day, but you know, there are some people that really, they, they kind of wish Valentine's Day would just disappear entirely. And I'm not talking about just the people, you know, who don't have that special someone in their life yet. I'm not talking about you guys over there. You know, there, there will come a day probably when you'll get to celebrate Valentine's Day and not just get, you know, that card from your mom. <laughs> Love you guys. But I'm talking about the person who, who did really appreciate Valentine's Day, but, but you know, there's been so much water under the bridge. There's, there's been so much scarring that has taken place, so much disappointment that the thought of Valentine's Day anymore, just, I enjoyed it at one point, but not so much anymore. If you only knew That's what she would tell you. That's what she would begin with if you asked her why she doesn't celebrate Valentine's Day anymore. If you only knew. Of course, there was a time when receiving flowers and heart-shaped boxes of candy, it just made her heart melt. She just couldn't wait for that day when that was finally going to happen. She was looking forward to that day of having that, that special someone who, who she could love and, the, and that would love her. And that was just an exciting prospect. And when that day finally came, she was just thrilled. This was the guy that everyone wanted to be around. This is the guy that everyone admired. This is the heartthrob of all the girls. And when he gently took a hand and led it across the gymnasium floor and danced all night long, she looked down and was astounded. It was hers. This was the the start of a beautiful relationship, right? It was was an exciting romance full of promise. And in their senior year, they were even, they were even, voted most likely to live happily ever after. What a sweet thought, right? But that was high school. And 12 years later, after a horrific number of unmet promises, of disappointment after disappointment, dreams that just didn't turn out the way she thought they would, the discovery of of hidden flaws, the unanticipated loneliness, the infrequency of any interest in affection, and the countless hurts that just couldn't be forgiven. Valentine's Day had become something that she just wished would go away. And if she could, really, she would just have it erased from the calendar completely. If you only knew. There comes a time when enough is enough, right? When water under the bridge, it backs up in this nasty pile of foul-smelling debris. How much can a person really take? 
When I was in high school and first started working on cars, I love working on cars. It's one of the things I, I do, especially my car needs a lot of work. Um, but I realized very quickly that you can only turn a nut so many times before the bolt snaps. How far is too far? How many times can hurt be overlooked? Bad habits ignored and failures forgiven. That's the way you would think that God would feel about His people Israel. He had given everything to her. In Ezekiel 16, it tells us that she was like this unwanted child that was abandoned in a field and just left for dead. And he came in and he sees her and he he comes down and he scoops her up and he, he cares for her. He rescues her. He takes her home. And when she was old enough for, for marriage, he says this in Ezekiel 16, 8, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. What a love story, right? What an incredible picture of love. And like any marriage is supposed to have, there was supposed to be a certain aspect of exclusivity to it. When Melissa and I um, first uh, became official, uh, at the risk of being extremely awkward, I I came up to her and I I said, so uh, are we exclusive now? (laughs) And I think she did laugh. But, but this thing that, that we kind of had together, it, 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 was, it was so special, and I wanted it to just be ours, and I think rightly so, it needed to be ours and ours alone, and that's what made it so special, so beautiful. On the doorstep of the promised land, Moses charged this bride of God's with this in Deuteronomy 8.11. He says, take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. In other words, make it your priority, your highest priority to remain faithful to God. Be His. Be His alone. And he goes on, and I'm going to read on. It's a little long, but it's good, so just try to take it in. He says, don't forget, lest when you've eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with with, with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers, they did not know. Then he might humble you and test you to do good, to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The requirement of this marriage was very simple. 
God had already done it. He was, he, was, he was following up on His side. He would love them. He would care for them. He would uphold them. He would help and cause them to prosper. And all they had to do was remember Him, be faithful to Him, and trust Him. He was their husband, their protector, their provider. And Moses says, he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. But they forgot. Again and again and again. And here in 1 Samuel 12, we have the response of God's messenger to yet another act of forgetfulness. Yet another act of unfaithfulness. Actually, it was more than just one in a series. This was a crowning act. A definitive act. It was a pivotal moment. What was the moment? The king had been crowned. Finally. The celebration had begun. Balloons were flying up. Confetti was floating down. Maybe the James Brown of the day was singing the Hebrew equivalent to living in America. I mean, national pride and fervor was just soaring. It was at its height. This was a huge moment in Israel's history. After having waited for so long, Since Gideon, really, they finally had a king like all the other nations around them. They finally got what they wanted. In 1 Samuel 11, 15, it says that Saul and all the men of Israel, they rejoiced greatly. I mean, this was a great day. Or was it? See, amidst all the celebration, all the food, all the fanfare, all the loud music, the messenger takes the podium. Of all the people, Samuel had a right to get up there and say a few words. After all, he was the one from his youth who had walked beside them. He had, he had brought to God their concerns and, and their needs, and in turn, he had taken and delivered God's message, God's instructions to them. And now that he and the old way of doing things is being transitioned, pushed out for a modern, new government deserve to have a farewell address. But I wonder what the people were thinking. I wonder if some of the people said, ah, here he is. Here's Samuel. Let's see what he has to say. The one who stood in the way of progress for so long. Let's see if this dinosaur is finally getting on board. Let's see if he finally admits he was wrong all the time. Here's what he says. Verse 1. This is 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I've obeyed your voice in all that you've said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I'm old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from whom have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me. I'll restore it to you. And they said, You've not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he's witness. 
And so Samuel begins by challenging these people to find one single offense, one single offense against him. And of course, the people come back and they say, there's nothing. No, as God is our witness, you've been good to us, Samuel. We will give you that. You see what Samuel's doing here? I mean, certainly he's, he's kind of vindicating himself, establishing his credibility here, reiterating that, but I think he's doing something more here as well. He's beginning to subtly undermine their reasons for wanting a king in the first place. Time and time again, he had warned them. He said, this isn't a good idea. This isn't a good idea. This isn't a good idea. He was trying to help them realize that getting rid of the old way, God's way of doing things, and substituting a new government, a new monarchy, that was a mistake. And so Samuel here says, have I taken this? Have I taken that? Actually, the Hebrew word for take here, it's mentioned four times in verses 3 and 4, though it may not appear in our translations. And what he was saying, I wonder, when he says, have I taken this, have I taken that, I wonder if he's in the back of people's minds, they're they're recalling what he had said to him a couple chapters back in chapter 8. He said this in chapter 8, verse 11. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain, and so on it goes. The people had complained about Samuel getting old, and they complained about his his sons not being fit for leadership. And Samuel wasn't about to say, well, I'm not really getting old. It, It was obvious, right, as it is for so many of us. And he wasn't going to say to them, well, my sons really aren't that bad. Give them a chance. They can lead you. No, he didn't go there. But what he does want to help them realize is that the kind of faithful, kind, honest leadership that they had experienced under him and under God, he shouldn't expect that in the days to come. You're celebrating now, but do you realize what you've done here? Do you realize what the days ahead are going to look like? And then Samuel turns their attention off of himself and onto God. Look at verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Here he goes. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But remember the phrase here, but they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and Ashtoreth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Samuel wants them to see the pattern here, the pattern of God's care and faithfulness to them in stark contrast to their pattern of unfaithfulness to him over the years. See, up until now, there had been this repeating cycle of oppression, repentance, and then deliverance. 
And then once they had been delivered, they would turn their backs on God again, and the whole cycle would begin all over again. That's what happened in Egypt, right? They were oppressed. God, they cry out to God. God delivers them, brings them through the Red Sea. And what's the next thing they're doing? They're making their own God, and they're bowing down. And they're saying, look, Israel, here is your God who delivered you out of Egypt. They turn from him. They forgot the Lord their God. And the cycle repeats itself over and over again in the judges. There's unfaithfulness. There's crisis. There's a cry for help. And then it's followed by deliverance from leaders that God provides. Even though time and time again, God's bride would abandon him to worship other gods, each time they turn their back on him, but then they would look back to him they would recall him. They would remember him. They'd come running back and they'd say, we've done something terrible. The oppression, the trouble that they face, it reminded them of their need for God. They would recognize their sin. They would turn back to him and say, we really don't want that anymore. We want you. And God would deliver them. Have you experienced that in your life? You find yourself wandering away from God looking to other things to satisfy you, maybe even intentionally allowing yourself to dwell or fantasize on something, or maybe you say something, or you participate in something, only to find yourself just plagued with guilt and facing consequences that you don't want. And in desperation, you cry out to the Lord for help. You claim 1 John 1, 9, you say, if I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You trust that Jesus Christ, what He accomplished on the cross, that washes you clean. But then the same thing, or maybe a similar thing, takes place again, and the cycle repeats over again. Have you ever wondered how far is too far? Or have you ever wondered if, if God might one day say, if you only knew what she did to me, or how he abandoned me, then you would understand why I cannot forgive any longer. Have you ever felt that way? Israel was a repeat offender. But each time they found themselves in trouble, they would confess their sin, they would turn to it, and God would deliver him. But look at verse 12. Something different happens here. The people of Israel once again find themselves in terrible trouble, but this time, this time, they don't turn to God for help. This time, they want their help to come from a different source. Samuel recalls in verse 12, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And Samuel says, when, when the Lord your God was your king. Do you, you see what you asked for? You, you asked for a king to reign over us? You said you didn't want your deliverance from God. You, God was your king. The Ammonite king comes knocking on Israel's doorstep with a barbaric threat. He says, I want you to gouge out all of your right eyes. And if you don't, I'm going to wipe the face of the earth with you. It is going to be gruesome. And it was a gruesome threat. But do you know what? God had delivered them from nastier things in the past. They had no reason to think that God wouldn't come through this time as He had done the other times. 
And yet instead, they decide we don't want God to deliver us this time. They say, we don't want deliverance from God anymore. We want a king. And in essence, Samuel is saying, do you realize what you've done? Do you realize what you've done? This is treachery of the worst kind. I mean, this is far more than infidelity we're talking about now. This was one who had been rescued, cared for brought up and bailed out time and time again. This is that person saying, I don't want you. I'm done with you. I want someone else. I mean, essentially, this was, this was papers being handed saying, I want out. Samuel spelled it out for them very, very clearly in, uh, when he said this. He said, today... Today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses and you've said, set a king over us. How how much more clear can he be than that? They had traded their king for another. But you know the funny thing is, apparently it hadn't sunk in. They didn't get it yet. 1 Samuel 11.15 says that at the same time they are they are um, they're bringing up their king and saying, here he is at the coronation. They are at the same time praising God. It, it says, it says they, there they sacrificed at Gilgal. They sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I mean, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? Maybe it was... Maybe we can have it both ways. Maybe, maybe we can have it both ways. Did, did they think that they could get around God's authority and do things the way they wanted and still maintain, maintain this healthy relationship with Him? Did they think that they could hold on to the blessings that God gives them and simultaneously say, you're not in charge anymore? We've done that at times, haven't we? There are times when we do that. We intentionally, maybe even blatantly, walk away from God or make compromises, fully expecting we can have it both ways. We think that we can straddle this fence and put one foot on one side of God's blessing. He's going to continue to bless us, but we dangle the foot on the other side that's self-indulgent and behavior that is diametrically opposed to God. What are we thinking? Have we chosen to completely ignore the words of God to the church of Laodicea? I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You can't be in and out at the same time. You can't have it both ways. And whatever it was that they thought, Samuel has a rude awakening for them here in chapter 12. In verse 13, he says this, Now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So Samuel says this. He says, here he is. Here's your king. You asked for him. You've got him. But he may not be all that you expected. 
this, the situation we're in right now, it may not be what you were thinking it was going to be. Let's get a few things straight. First of all, you didn't make him king. God did. He's the one calling the shots here. Second of all, the government may have changed, but the rules of the covenant, they're still here. You're still under God's authority. And he says, you may have a king, but if you want things to go well, both you and your king are going to have to follow the king of kings. And not only that, if you do not, know that your king is powerless against the hand of the real king. In other words, everything has changed. Nothing has changed. And then just to prove his point, Samuel calls upon the Lord to demonstrate his power. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, stand still. See this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I'll call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. If you've ever been in a really bad storm, you know that it be, can be kind of nerve-wracking. You know, that ear-piercing thunder and the sky-splitting lightning and torrential downpour, it can make even brave people feel a bit uneasy. But what was really shocking about this storm to them was that it happened in the dry season, a time when it doesn't rain. In fact, there weren't clouds anywhere. It was just totally out of the blue. The only warning that they had was Samuel saying, I'm going to call upon the Lord. And then it happens. This was drastic. This was shocking. It was totally unexpected. And the people's reaction is this, wrecked with fear. The power of God all of a sudden became very real and very tangible. The fantastic stories that they had heard about how God had delivered their forefathers out of Egypt and how He had protected them time and time again, all of a sudden that became vividly real. The covenant that was outlined in their sacred text, all of a sudden the teeth of that were showing and they realized, whoa, this thing makes a difference here. And they, it was clear to them at that moment that this wasn't a God to be trifled with. It wasn't a God to be ignored. To fear Him was clearly the beginning of wisdom, and they greatly feared at this moment. And in the wake of that fear came a haunting question. What on earth were we thinking to turn our backs on this type of king? Who were we thinking? And all at once, the horror of what they had done came crashing down on them. In fact, it was so bad, in their minds, they anticipated the greatest possible punishment here. Verse 19, it says, All the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. We've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They're fully convinced this could be the end of the road. The nut had been turned a hair too tight and was about to snap. But was it the end? I mean, had the well of God's mercy and grace for them finally run dry? You would think it'd be the last straw. Years of unfaithfulness, repeated shameless requests to trade God's leadership for a human king, and after being warned time and time again, and finally just given over, okay, here he is, here's your king, you would think that, that, that God would come down harshly on them, and here's what God does. He gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them 
His grace. The most shocking twist of this chapter are the words, the four words that Samuel gives right in verse 20. He says, do not be afraid. What? What did you say, Samuel? You're telling us that we should not be afraid? You just spent all this time telling us how, how treacherous, how, how evil, how wicked we have... Even, even, even numbskulls like us realize we are in big trouble here, Samuel. What are you talking about? He, wait a second. Is it because is it, you're messing with us, huh? You want to go out in, in a blaze of glory? You want to kind of get back at us? You want to see us tremble one last time? Okay, the gig's up. It really wasn't that bad what we asked for, right? No. Samuel says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Well, Samuel, was it, was it because we're, God just he can't get enough of us, we're just so valuable to him, and we're worth so much on our own that he just he can't bring it to himself to, to punish us? No, it's not that either. In fact, it's really not even about you. It's about who God is. Look at verse 22. Here's the reason he gives. The Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. You see, God can forgive over and over and over again. He can pour limitless grace on His people not because of their great name. It's independent of their, the, any value that they have on their own. It's independent of their goodness, independent of their ability to color in the lines. Samuel made it very clear they had done a terrible evil. He said, great wickedness. It's not about them. Not about their performance. Not about their merit. It's all about his faithfulness to his great name. It's about his passion for his own glory. Piper writes this, he says, God is totally committed to upholding the, the worth and truth and righteousness of His own name. That's what moves God to give grace. His own righteousness, truth, His own great name. The answer to too, how far is too far is there is not a too far. Because God's grace is not dependent on us but on His great name, His own character, His own righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. God's grace is amazing. And it's, and it's amazing because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God Himself. And in the few moments we have left, I just want to camp here on God's grace for just a moment. Two things that really jump off the page to me regarding God's grace. First of all, His grace, it, it limit, limitlessly forgives. The forgiveness knows no bounds here. God doesn't harbor bitterness and resentment and justify it with the phrase, if you only knew, if you only knew what these people have done to me, if you only knew how many chances I've given them, if you only knew how much pain I'm still struggling with. Peter once asked Jesus how many times he should be expected to forgive someone. He said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
as many as seven times, it's pretty good, right? Pretty good. It's much more than three strikes rule. Jesus' reply reveals how God's grace intersects with forgiveness. He said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And that could also be translated 70 times seven. And whether it was 77 or 490, that really doesn't make any difference. The point is the same. I love what one commentator writes. He writes, the number was astronomical. The point was that forgiveness is not something one can track with a calculator. There's no limit to God's mercy. God limitlessly forgives. It never stops and never gives up. It's unbreaking. And, and, and what we fail to realize so very often is, is God's grace isn't just about the, the forgiveness side, it's about the conviction side beforehand. It's, it's God's grace. It was God's grace bringing that storm and helping Israel realize we've done a big bad thing here. It wouldn't have been God's grace to just say, I'm just going to pull back, and I'm just going to remove it, and I'm just going to let them go and go their merry way. It was God's grace to send Samuel up to the stage and intervene here and bring them to the point of terror. That was God's grace, and the same is true for us. We sing about it. John Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" God's act of opening our eyes to the horror of our sin and, and the punishment that we should have, that's His grace. But He doesn't leave us there. Newton goes on to write, His grace, grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Notice almost immediately, do not fear you have done this evil. They're put right next to each other. We like to see people sweat. We like to say, you've done this evil, now pay for it. We place the evil right next to the judgment. We say, these stay right here. And God says, my, it's my grace to help you see what you've done. That is grace. That is mercy on your soul. Show you that you need me. And watch me forgive you. Have you ever found yourself contemplating whether or not your cycle of sin has gone too far and you've exhausted the grace of God? There's no limit. What Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross in paying for our sins, it can't be outdone by the number or the heinousness of our sin. What He did was enough. And there should be no more room given to condemnation and guilt and doubt and fear because no amount of beating yourself up, self-condemnation, is going to take your sin any further away from you than Christ already took it. Look at verse 20 again. He says, Do not be afraid. You've done this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty he says, there's, don't fear, you've done this evil, yet we're going right back here. We're getting right back on course. Verse 24, he says, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with your whole heart. One commentator says it this way, he says, do you see it? You don't go back and wallow in your guilt, 
relive the tragic mistake, the big one that soured your life. You don't make yourself miserable by bathing your mind in the memory of your rebellion, punching the replay button and going over the whole messy episode in lurid and precise detail as, as, as though such misery makes atonement. He says, no, you go forward in basic, simple fidelity to Yahweh from that point on. His grace is, is final. It, it, it's, it limitlessly forgives, and we should pack into there as well. It effectively and definitively forgives. That's good news. God's grace is amazing for that, but it's also amazing in that it transforms. It brings beauty from ashes. It really does. Think about this. The result of Israel's sin was in front of them. They wanted a king. Now they had one. And now they recognize their sin, and they're being extended God's forgiveness. But then you would think that God would say, okay, we've dealt with this. Don't be afraid. Forgiving you. Let's get back on track here. Now let's erase this mess you've made here. We're going to get rid of this King Saul. You go back to just, you know, looking for donkeys, and we are going to move forward with me. Just me, Samuel, get back up here. You'd think he'd do that, but he doesn't. Instead, he not only forgives their sin, but he transforms it. And he transforms it into a new road that that would show even greater grace in the future. He's going to use this new monarchy to establish the throne of David. And through David's line, Jesus Christ is going to come. And he's going to be its Savior. What Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis 5.20, Rick mentioned it a couple sermons ago, it rings true here and it applies for us as well. God takes our evil and he uses it for good. It's an incredible thing. Even Samuel recognized that. And though his, his leadership and his, just right along with God, he was being rejected as well as God's messenger here, he allows the transition to affect and impact his own role and to be turned into something good. In verse 23, he says, As for me... Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I'll instruct you in the good and right way. If God was going to transform this mess into something beautiful, then Samuel was right there with him. He said, I'm going to allow the same thing to happen for my relationship with Israel. God takes our evil, He uses it for good, and the ultimate example we know is in Christ. That's what He did with the most scandalous sin ever committed. God's God uh, took the the unjust execution of Jesus Christ, the innocent, spotless Lamb of God. There's, There's no more horrific event in all of human history than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He took the very thing that should condemn us all, and He used it to be the very thing that saved us. There is no too far. God never says, if you only knew. His grace never stops. It never gives up. It never breaks down. Because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on His great name. His grace limitlessly forgives, and His grace transforms evil into good. Do you know that grace? Do you know it? You might be here this morning, you might say, I'm a bit confused. You might be thinking, I've never experienced this grace. I'm still walking around with a conscience that knocks on me all the time and says, you're guilty. 
and, I, and I'm still struggling with this, and, and I don't see tr- God transforming my evil or evil that is even done to me into something good. What are you talking about? Well, the thing about God's saving, forgiving, transformational grace is this. It's accessed by faith, and not just faith in general, but faith in God's way of salvation that He's provided in Jesus Christ. It, it looks like this. Faith in Jesus looks like this. Acknowledging your sinfulness, just like Israel did. We have really made a mistake here, and we really need forgiveness. Pray to God that He will forgive us. You acknowledge your sinfulness. And furthermore, you, you need to not just be sad that you got caught, but truly look at your sin and say, this is not good. I, have, I should have been going this way, and I've been going this way, and I don't want to go that way anymore. I need to live my life differently. The key element is this, it's trust. It's trust that Jesus took your sin upon Himself when He died on the cross. He paid for it in full. Not only did He die there, He rose from the dead three days later, proving that He is who He said He was and accomplished what He said He accomplished. And maybe right now is your moment to experience God's grace for the very first time. And for many others, you have experienced that grace. And maybe you've experienced that cycle happening in your life over and over again. You make a mistake, well, you blatantly sin and turn against God, and you confess your sin, and you trust in His forgiveness. That's good, but could it be like Israel? Could it be that we've come to a point where we start to trust in our own sanctification? We start thinking, ah, you know, on the, on the mountain of, of getting closer to Christ's likeness, I'm, I'm getting up there. I can, I can see the, the summit up there. Whoa, some people are way down there. And we start feeling pretty confident in ourselves. And I wonder if sometimes maybe there's a blindness, just like Israel, that happens to us, where we think we're doing pretty good, and we come here and we raise our hands and we're praising God and we're not seeing some things that are going on inside our own lives. My prayer for myself and for us is that God will open our eyes continually. I think that should be our our ongoing prayer. Lord, with with David in in Psalm 129, uh, Lord, please evaluate me, look at me, reveal to me what needs to change. Is there pride in my life? Is there unforgiveness in my life? Have I latched on to some agenda that I thought was a holy war, but really it's not, not of you at all? Like, Lord, save me from going down a road that is, that is not of you. And in the end, Lord, I just want to be yours. I want to be yours alone. I want to be faithful to you. I want to fear you and serve you faithfully with my whole heart. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we just... We are so thankful for passages like this where you give us just very clearly laid out how you extend grace to us. We thank you for your incredible grace that, that opens our eyes to see our need for you, opens our eyes to see our waywardness. And Lord, for those of us in this room who know you, Lord, um, and, and might be have hidden things in our lives that we need brought out to, into the light 
that we might be further transformed in the image of Christ and, and claim the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lives. Lord, I pray that you would bring those to mind, that you would give us the humility to recognize that we might be, we might not have it all together. Lord, convict us of sin, lead us to you. And Lord, for those who might be here this morning and, and haven't ever trusted Jesus Christ, they're still carrying the weight of their sin. They're still working on performance and trying to get to that point where they feel good enough about themselves. Their, their good deeds are outweighing their bad deeds and they think somehow that's going to justify them. Lord, help them to see through that. Open their eyes to see they're never going to be good enough on their own. They need what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Lord, I pray that this very moment would be the moment where they place their trust in you and say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. My life was filled with crimson stains. He washed me white as snow. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace in our lives. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The message titled, How Far is Too Far? was given by Pastor Jared Burke at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.